glad that you will be preaching, for you clearly have no musical gifts. So, we're just glad you're going to find what you're good at. I find that some of us uh, are amazed when uh, someone who's famous, a celebrity or an athlete, stops and spends time with someone else. I think that we tend to be amazed that they would care. We are amazed that they would, uh, they who seem very important, would stop and spend time with someone who is known by really no one else. Uh, my fear, though, is that we might be more amazed when celebrities do this than we are with the incarnation of Christ. Perhaps, friends, some of us are not near as amazed by the incarnation as we should be. I think every time that we read John 1, 14, and the word became what? I was thinking about writing a song about that, but we'll, we'll see. I wrote one last year for our people, and it became an annoying little ditty, but it got in their head, and they know the verse. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. This should stagger us. I think the incarnation should stagger us even more than the resurrection, though both are amazing. The fact that God would become one of us. It says the word became flesh. Who was the word? Well, the word was with God, and the word was God. So very God himself took on our human form. Uh, and he does it without losing any of who he is. Bette Midler, you know, had the song that I talk about all the time, From a Distance, right? You remember that several years ago? I'm so thankful she doesn't teach theology at seminaries, right? Because that, that would be wretched. Uh, from the point of that song, God's a deist who kind of starts the world going and then takes his hands off, and he's just kind of watching over us from a distance. Friends, the incarnation shatters that. It's not a distance. He is with us. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And what Hebrews 2.17 says is, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sons of the people. I want to teach you a, a $2 phrase. You ready? Hypostatic union. What is it? Is that what occurs when a sock sticks to a shirt in the dryer? This is a hypostatic union. This, is, this isn't just static. This is hypostatic, right? No, that's not right. The hypostatic union means that Jesus' divine nature and D- Jesus' human nature are both found inside of him. And take that and impress your waitress with that word and ask as you're ordering cheese fries, have you ever pondered the hypostatic union? And then confess, that's all I know about it, but let's, let's have the club sandwich. So whatever it is. Uh, there's this amazing picture that in Jesus, he's fully God and he's fully man. It's what David Mathis has said. Jesus took a human body to save our bodies, and he took a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming man in his emotions, he could have not saved our emotions. Without taking a human will, he could not save our will. In the words of Gregory, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Friends, if Christ would have remained in heaven, we would all perish in our sins. If Christ had not become involved with us by becoming a man, we would have no hope. So the reason why that's important is because our passage in Romans today is going to call us to be very involved in the lives of people, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, 
to hang out with people that no one else would hang out with. And the grounding of that is the very incarnation of Christ. Christ has displayed this for us. The question is, are we going to be obedient and follow through as our king does? I want you to stand with me. We're going to read two verses in Romans 12. Verses 15 and 16. Beginning in verse 15 of Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Father, we thank you for your text, and thank you that you've preserved it, that we may encounter it today. Thank you that we have it in our language. As always, Father, we're mindful that there are places in this world that cannot study your scripture today because they do not have it in your language, in their language. Father, we pray, would you send folks out to translate the scriptures? Would you send them to the places that are waiting to be able to study what we're studying today? Father, we need your spirit to light this text up to us. If your spirit doesn't light it up, we will not grasp it. If your spirit does not help apply this text to our lives, then we are helpless. So, Father, use your spirit. Anoint your word. Change your people to look like the church. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. We've been on a journey. We started the year earlier in Galatians and studying the gospel word. And once we completed Galatians, we transitioned to what we call the gospel community. Paul and the other New Testament writers have this hunch that the gospel should make a difference in our lives. And as we see the church, the problem is too many of us come up with our own definitions of the church. And when we started this series, I began, uh, I, I brought out 15, 17 different books on what church might be. Aqua Church, Church Next, uh, Purpose Driven Church, you name it. There's a whole list of ideas of what the church should be, but I tend to think that God knows best what the church should be since he planned it, he purchased it, he powers it. And so what we see in Romans 12 is what difference does the gospel make in us? And we've been studying that. And should the Lord give us today and next Sunday, friends, we will complete Romans 12. And then Pastor Byron will preach for us on the 26th, and on January 2nd, we shall see what the Lord will do with us. But we are here in Romans twelve fifteen and 16, and, and just what does it mean to be the gospel community? And as we studied, we studied 9 through 13, and it's clearly how Christians are to relate to one another. But we make a transition as we move into 14 to say, how are Christians supposed to relate to everyone else? And so we've begun a, a second little series here of the gospel community in the community. When we are not gathered, but we are the church scattered, and we're out and about, what are the things that we should be doing? And last week we saw that when we take the gospel to the world, not everyone's going to thank us for it. Not everyone's going to rejoice in that. Matter of fact, some are going to persecute us. And when they do, then our reaction is we bless them. We pray and we ask God to do good to them rather than asking God to turn his face away from them and give them what their sin deserves. We want to be those who bless them. This week we learn a couple more things. We learned that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and to never be conceited. And four aspects of this passage that I put in the outline for you, we'll begin with the first one, is this. Like Christ, we are to empathize with others. We are to empathize with others. When you see a child crying, what do most of you do, ladies? What do most of you ladies do when you see a child crying? You'll go to that child, right? Men, what do you do? You look for a lady right? This child is crying. He needs your comfort. He needs your touch, right? 
When someone falls, what do we tend to do? You try to help them, unless you're my sister. If you fall in front of my sister, she will laugh first. My poor mom, we were going in somewhere, and mom fell. And my sister just laughed and laughed hysterically, and then was like, are you okay? You know? So if you fall, Laralyn won't pick you up. But the rest of us, when someone falls, we help them. The gospel calls us to be involved in the lives of others. There's nowhere that we're called to be by ourselves. Best has said this, there's no Christianity without fellowship, and this means as in a family, entering into those experiences of others which are deepest and mean most to them. Do you remember what Galatians 6 said? It says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially the household of believers. And then verse 1 and 2 in Galatians 6 said that when one amongst us sins, we should restore them. When one has a burden, we should carry it with them. Friends, the gospel calls us to be involved in the lives of others, not standoffish. When someone falls into sin, we don't run the other way, friends. We want to run to them. And we don't give condemnation. Why? Because Romans has already answered that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Christ has taken the condemnation. We want to be about restoring and running toward them in these things, sharing these burdens. So it calls us to be involved. In this particular context, we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're supposed to not just do something, friends. We're supposed to feel something. The sheer joy of rejoicing in whatever it is they're rejoicing in and the misery and the burden and the grief as we weep with those who weep. Miss Amy Whitson shared with me, we've been praying for several weeks for a little baby named Sterling. And Sterling got into some kerosene at a daycare center. And uh, we've been praying and God turned around some things in Sterling. He was able to come off the life support and seemed to be doing well. And she shared with me that he passed away yesterday. And Sterling passed away. Friends, this is where we, we weep with the parents of Sterling. We weep with that congregation of that church. And it's not just an action, friends. It's a feeling. It's a gospel-produced uh, compassion that, is, uh, that comes through us. The question, though, that I would ask, all right, we're supposed to rejoice with people and weep with people, but who are these? As I've already stated in this picture of Sterling, in one sense, we rejoice with anyone who's rejoicing, and we weep with any who are weeping. You know, we should care uh, today about what's going on in Haiti. How many folks are losing people to cholera day after day after day? How many orphans are still in Haiti crying for someone to adopt them? Friends, we should weep with these that are weeping. We should rejoice. I got a picture of the graduating class of the Uganda Baptist Seminary, and you should see their smiles. We should rejoice with these brothers who are graduating. And when Hurricane Katrina occurred casey and i got the chance to go down to the airport and help folks get off helicopters and you you know some of us would say particularly when it comes to weeping i'm not real good with words Uh, friends you don't have to be good with words to cry with somebody when we were getting folks off the helicopter it wasn't really about words it was just about walking along with them to those aid stations and to the places where they could get help and it's about caring. It's about rejoicing with those that are rejoicing. It's about weeping with those who are weeping. Here's what I would submit to you, friends. If we do not care about the lost, they will not care about our gospel. If we do not care about the lost, they will not care about our gospel. If we are standoffish and distant, if we are not involved with the world, they probably won't get involved with our gospel, friends. We have to find some way that we can come alongside these folks. And that's where I would say one more word to you. Ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. Because you know what? We all have problems. 
Uh, there are often, I, I wish all of you could sit in and what I listen to uh, that comes through my office or comes through the neighborhood, we all have problems. We just hide them from one another. Friends, we all have issues, including at 9515 Country Lake Drive. That's my address. Ministry's messy. We want to be involved. And this is what the gospel calls us to. So certainly in one sense, we're called globally to do this. Secondly, with the church. If we're not rejoicing with those in the church and weeping with those in the church, we're probably not going to do it with those outside. So how many of you remember when William and Valerie Cook were able to have their first child? You remember? We prayed forever, so many miscarriages, and we rejoiced together with them, with Connor's adoption. How we've rejoiced to see this. With the graduates, with Leslie graduating and with Jennifer and with Stephanie. We rejoice in these things. Look, many of you have wept with me. I'll never forget Amy Whitson when, my, uh, when Tara and I lost our second baby. And we had the miscarriage. And I'll never forget the call when Tara called and said the baby's dead in the womb. But what I also will not forget is Amy Whitson crying with us. And weeping with us and sharing their own experiences of pain. And being the church. Uh, seeing Dr. David and uh, going to visit him and the loss of his mother. And uh, Dr. David's weeping, and I want to weep with him. On our best days, friends, we stand together, and on our worst days, we stand together. This is what it means to be the gospel community. And I would say, just a reminder, I know that some of you ladies are here, and your husbands are not believers. We continue to weep with you. We continue to pray with you. I prayed this week for your husbands, and we'll continue to do that. It's what it means to be the gospel community. But now let me challenge you a bit further. Look at verse 14. Bless those who, what? What's it say there? Persecute you, right? Verse 17. Repay no one, what? Evil for evil. Can I press this a little further in who we rejoice with and who we weep with? These verses are surrounded by two reminders of people who harm us. People who do evil to us, people who persecute us. And I believe this text is not just calls, calling us to rejoice with those in this bubble. It's not just calling us to weep with those that have gone through Hurricane Katrina. It's even calling us to rejoice and weep with those who persecute us for the cause of Christ. Well, how many of you would say that's difficult? What keeps us from obeying a text then if we're called to even love these people and rejoice with these people? I think there's a couple things. Bitterness, jealousy, vindictiveness. If we were honest, I think there's some good things that happen to others that we wish happened to us instead. We are jealous. Or worse, we don't want that person to receive anything good. And if that's us this morning, we need to pause and go back to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. And friend, we're called not only to do it, but to want to do it. Called to want to God to do good to these people. And so bitterness and jealousy and vindictiveness, uh, it gets crushed with the gospel. We'll see that in a moment. We don't want to be the, pro- the prodigal son's older brother. How many of you have ever heard the story of the prodigal son? Many of us who have grown up in church have. In case you haven't, there's a younger brother who I always say is too big for spiritual britches. And he decides he knows what he wants. He's probably 13. I'm just kidding. Uh, he thinks that he knows. And so he asks his dad, who's not dead, for his inheritance, which would have been very offensive. I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can I have my money anyway? And he goes off, and he uses it, spends it wildly, ends up slopping pigs. Note to self, teenagers, if you ask your parents for early inheritance, you will wind up with pigs. Just saying. It's what the Bible says. I'm just kidding. So 
And he, he has this realization of the servants in my father's house have it better. And he goes back. And the father, who's been looking for the son, runs out and embraces him. But what about the older brother? The older brother doesn't, does he? He's upset. He's like, I've been here and you haven't given me anything. You wouldn't even let me have a cow so I could have a barbecue with my friends. There was a football game we wanted to watch, and you wouldn't even give us the big old cow. And now he's come home, he smelled like pig, and you've given him the whole cow. What's up? He's upset. And he tends to be a picture of us. Because we don't always rejoice with people we don't think deserve what they're getting. And friend, can I remind us? None of us deserve the grace of God. None of us deserve mercy. None of us deserve. There are others who weep. And I'm afraid if we were honest, we might say we're glad they're weeping. We want them to weep. We want them to have pain. Boyce says the problem in all of this is selfishness. And he says we have to stop thinking of ourselves and our own interests all the time. The only way that we can do this is by a transformation accomplished by Jesus Christ. I hope that you will remember where we are in Romans 12. You don't get to verse 15 and 16 in Romans 12 unless you go through Romans 12, 1 through 3. Romans 12, 1 says, By the mercies of God that we would offer our bodies to Christ, that our minds would be renewed, and that we would begin to think like God. And when you begin to think like God, friends, or as the text is calling us to, when the gospel is truly transforming us, we'll rejoice with whoever rejoices and we'll weep with whoever weeps. And if we're not at that point, And we have not spent enough time yet at the cross of Christ. That is the place that selfishness is crucified. That is the place that bitterness is crucified. That is the place that vindictiveness is crucified. The cross of Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Why in the world would we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Well, friends, number one is it's what Jesus did. How many of you know the shortest Bible verse? Jesus wept. Good for you, you know. We would do these summer camps with Centrifuge, and they would have to memorize a Bible verse, and they would, or they would have to say a Bible verse and run down, say it, and then run back. And inevitably, every group was like, Jesus wept, and then would run back because it was the shortest verse, and they could get ahead of the others in the relay race. So the reason Jesus is weeping, he's identifying with Mary and Martha there at the death of Lazarus. Though he knows he's going to raise them, Jesus had empathy with those that were around him. Not only is it what Jesus did, friends, I would submit to you it's what Jesus does. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, I've put the reference in your outline. But here's what it says. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, friends, we have a Jesus who rejoices with us and a Jesus who weeps with us and a Jesus who knows our most intimate struggles, and he is deeply involved with us. Friends, if this Jesus is so involved with us, why in the world would we not be involved with others? The gospel either makes a difference in our lives or it does not. And if there is no transformation, I would remind you, I believe there's no gospel. The gospel changes us. The gospel transforms us. I've put some application questions on your uh, outline there, asking, one, how involved are we in the lives of others? If we are not rejoicing with others, we're not weeping with others, we're probably too consumed with ourselves. How involved are we in the lives of others? Number two, are there people who it would be difficult for us to rejoice with or to weep with? And friends, we've got to take that to Christ this morning. If there are people we want to see harmed, if there are people we 
We want to uh, not see good happen to them. Friends, we've got to take that to Christ. And number three is Christ's sympathy for us, producing concern in us for others. Again, this isn't good stuff. This is gospel stuff. I'm not asking you to be good Samaritans. I'm asking you to be gospel people. This is what the gospel community does, according to Romans 12. All right, number two, like Christ, we are to live in harmony with others. This is going to be, this is going to blow your mind, this statement, but Christians should be easy to get along with. I mean, this is deep stuff this morning, friends. I know you're wondering, where did I get all of this, right? You know, there's something uh, mysterious to me. Cranky Christians. Have you ever met a Christian who is cantankerous or ornery? How many of you have ever met him? How many of you live with him? All right, Linda Carl's raised her hand. If Kevin were here, he'd have raised them both. But I'm just saying, just saying. I had to speak up for my boy. He wasn't here. So, uh, man, it just makes no sense when Christians are grumpy and cranky and rude, right? When we are difficult to live with or associate with or do business with, we are not helping the gospel. Man, we are not helping the gospel. I once saw a guy wearing the shirt of another church here in town. And I was in the same store that he was. And based on his actions, I promise you, I was not drawn to that church. But let me ask us a question, friends. How do people view Crosspoint because of us? But more importantly, how do people view Christ because of us? Man, if we are not living in harmony, this is what we're called to, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Jim Boyce has said that Paul is talking about not making sparks or causing turmoil. We should not be like those Christian crusaders who are always looking for a fight or hunting down Christ's enemies. We are to love and win people, not root them out to beat them senseless. The mercy certainly part of Christ, and we know there was judgment. We'll get into these things. But the bottom line, Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. Friends, if we are not gracious people, the gospel will not be very compelling. If we are difficult to get along with, no one will probably be drawn to Jesus. So, how do we do it? How do we live in harmony? One secret for us inside here is, the closer we are to God, the closer we will be to one another. The closer you and I walk with God, the closer you and I will walk together. That's what John says about having fellowship. When we have fellowship with Christ, we will have fellowship with one another. So that's why it matters what you do during the week because it affects us and our fellowship. Number two, people were drawn to Jesus. Yes, I know. He took a bullwhip and turned over tables. And yes, I know there were religious leaders. He was like, "Uh, you're like a tomb. Outside you look clean. Inside you got dead man's bones inside of you. I know he had these. But, you know, there were countless other people who were bringing their children to Jesus. There were countless other people who were pressing in to be with Jesus. I wonder if that's how we are. I wonder if we're living in harmony with other people, or, or if our crankiness is working against the gospel in this city. Application, application questions here. Would anyone view us as cranky? Would anyone view us as argumentative, disagreeable? What does our homeowners association think about us? It's a good question to ask, friends. It's a great gospel question to ask. Would anyone have no desire to fellowship with us because of the little they've seen already? When the gospel community is unlovely, it does no favors for the gospel. Let's move forward in the passage. So not only are we to live in harmony with one another, but the next sentence says in verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So like Christ, we are to associate with the lowly. Phillips has said this, don't become snobbish, but take a real interest in ordinary people. Mounts has said the admonition is to get off one's high horse 
and come to grips with reality. They are both humble tasks and ordinary people who need our attention. How many of you know that favoritism sometimes happens in churches? How many of you know that it shouldn't? How many of you know that sometimes it happens in the best of us? Sometimes we're drawn more to other people than than some of the others, right? Well, let's take a moment. Paul's in, in Romans, and let's go back to James. James chapter 2, just, just to be reminded. And we'll just read verses 1 through 7 in James chapter 2. Here's what James writes. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James is just writing and saying, don't offer favoritism. And particularly, don't do it based on what you see. We make very poor judges. You know, we could see someone with a Rolex, but what we don't know is he's in debt up to his eyeballs. You could see someone in shabby clothes and not realize it, but he's Sam Walton. So uh, here are the pictures. Externally, we make more judges. Bottom line is, we want to be those who are willing to associate with anyone. Here are some things as I pondered this verse. When the church determines there are people beneath them, the church is in trouble, friends. When the church is not willing to associate with those no one else may regard, the church is in trouble. When I came to LSU, I pledged Kappa Sig. Not everyone is welcome at Kappa Sig. As a matter of fact, you get blackballed. If they don't like something about you, they give you clear instructions on what you're to wear. You can't ride the bus route. You can't even double strap your backpack without being a geek in the eyes of the Gamma chapter of Kappa Sig. What I found most refreshing when I went to the BCM is... Whoever you were, you were welcome. Whoever you were, you were welcome. Friends, when when the church is not willing to associate with those that no one else would regard, we are in trouble. When the church becomes too cool for school, we are in trouble. Cranfield has said that it's always a sign of worldliness of the church when its leaders no longer associate as readily or freely with humble people, both inside and outside the church, as with those who are socially superior. We should be in trouble with, uh, I, I think, uh, a church that has a pastor that is closer to the governor than the lowest member of their congregation. I think it's in danger. I think it's in danger. But it's not just pastors. Mounts has reminded us the tendency to regard oneself as worthy of preferential treatment is universal in scope. In all of us, there's some point that says, well, that's beneath me, or I deserve to be treated better, or I'm not willing to do that. Friends, as I would say... Uh, as I share with our pastors and their job descriptions and with any of our deacons, I'm willing to plunge any toilet on this campus. And so should we all be. We should be willing to roll up our sleeves and do whatever's necessary. When Christ is our king, then nothing is beneath us. Remember the guy who took off his outer garments, wrapped a towel around his waist? Does anyone remember what he did next? Washed the disciples' feet. Let me give you two reminders that will help us be willing to associate with everyone. Number one, never forget what we were like. 
Never forget what you were like when Christ rescued you. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Who's really going to stand before God and say, I was awesome when you picked me? I was so awesome, right? You needed me on your team, right? Uh, God says, you know why I do it? Because I can boast, not you. I choose the ones that no one else would choose. And I work in the way that no one else would be able to work. Never forget, friends, what we were like when God chose us. Number two, never forget who Jesus spent time with. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a we little man was he. He climbed up in a tree for the he won. We're making disciples at this place, people. We are making <laughs> disciples. You do realize that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And you realize people despise Zacchaeus. But you realize what Jesus said, right? Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm what? I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house today, Zacchaeus. Matthew 11, Jesus says, you know what they say about me? They say I'm a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you know why we have Matthew? Matthew's occupation was the very same as Zacchaeus's. He was sitting at his tax collector's booth, despised by many. And Jesus walked by and said to him, follow me. Friends, can we... Can we be reminded who Jesus hung out with? Can we be reminded that Jesus hung out with people who had problems, mainly sin? Can we be reminded of his example? And I would say a word in there. Jesus maintained a position of influence. Jesus influenced them more than they influenced him. And I think that's important as we seek to have gospel friendships with folks that aren't in Christ. Jesus did maintain a position of influence. If we find that we are being more influenced by their sin, uh, it's not beneficial at that point. We need to check that. But it doesn't mean that we should not hang around with sinners. Friends, we are sinners, and we should be with those that Christ hung with. Here's questions for us. Do we actually view anyone as beneath us? Really? Do we? That's got to be taken to Christ this point. Number two, are we really willing to associate with everyone, even if they're a bit socially awkward? Number three, are we spending time with the same kinds of people that Jesus did? Let's move to the last portion of this passage today. Three words, never be conceited. That's easy for us, right? Never be conceited, all right? Leon Morris said this, I loved it. The person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of other people. Uh, If you have to tell people how awesome you are, They probably already know you're not, friend, okay? So spare us. Spare us. One who thinks he's wise uh, is generally not in the others. The reason we become conceited is because we have an awful perspective of ourselves. Look back up in Romans 12, verse 3. Look back up a couple verses to verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
Remember the warning in Galatians 6. In Galatians 6, it says that those who sin, we should restore them. Those that have burdens, we should carry them. But do you remember the very next warning after that? It's the same warning as here. Don't think more highly as you should. It's interesting because as we get involved with those who are struggling with a sin or we get involved with those who are struggling with a heavy load, then we can become arrogant in our own to think, well, I'm not as bad as them. And Paul and Jesus immediately tell us, crush that. You're in the same need of grace that they are. You're in the same need of grace. And when we keep our eyes on the cross, then concede is really not a problem, is it, friends? Because we were in need of a Savior. None of us had righteousness in our own that merited instant reconciliation with God. And so we are in need of a Savior. We are the ones that uh, cry out and, and need Jesus along with the others. And so the cross keeps us humble. We also want to set our eyes on Jesus. In Philippians 2, we often read, but as we think about the incarnation... It sums up Jesus' humility and should be produced in us. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the more we look to Jesus the less conceited we will be. And can you ponder for a moment what it was like to leave the throne room of heaven? We've been studying Revelation in our Sunday morning time. And a few weeks ago, we had Revelation 4 and 5. And you see that scene as the lamb is standing there in the throne room of heaven. And all that we struggle to even grasp, the colors that are described and the sounds that are described. Friends, can you imagine what it was like to transition from there to being put in a feeding trough? He was laid in a manger friends why for our good and the glory of god it's tough for us to become conceited when christ is our king let me sum this up the trouble with these exhortations or exhortations of this nature practical as they may be is that they seem far beyond us and therefore discourage us if we start to take them seriously we can look at rejoice with those who rejoice weep with those don't be conceited live in harmony with one another associate with the lowly And they can become discouraging. They're not discouraging if we don't think too deeply about them. For then we just assume we are like this. We assume that we're we're doing these things. But if we examine ourselves, we'll have to admit that we do not pray for God's blessing on our enemies very often. We do not empathize with others. We do not act agreeably or associate with those the world scorns. And we're not often humble. And that is discouraging. Perhaps what we need to do here is simply get our minds off ourselves entirely and begin to think of Christ. Because if we think of him, we will become increasingly like him, even if we are not especially conscious of it. Friends, I would say to us, as we think about the incarnation, there's no greater passage for us to study than the one that the Lord has ordained for us to encounter today. Because of the incarnation, because Jesus wasn't standoffish, but became fully involved in our world, And as our high priest in our lives, we are called to do the same. We are called to live, Romans 12, even to people who may harm us or do evil to us. Now the question is, are we doing this? Are we living, Romans 12, 15 through 16, does the incarnation and the gospel of Christ make a difference in our lives? I pray it's so. I want to give us a chance to close out this morning really in prayer. I want to spend a few moments in prayer, and Pastor Byron's going to come and lead us in a song and the truth is we may need to come this morning and 
repent and say, God, I'm sorry, because there's some people I don't want good to be done to them. And God, I need you to change my desire. God, there are some people that when they weep, I'm glad they're weeping. And we need to confess that. There may be some of us who need to repent and say, God, I've not been willing to associate with others. Or I've not been willing to do certain tasks because I've drawn an unnecessary boundary. But I see that Jesus washed feet. I should do the same. We may need to come and say, Father, forgive me before I've become conceited. Produce humility in me through the cross. We want to give you a chance to respond to these things. Most importantly, to the gospel community. Are we living this or not? Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for your word and very practical teachings from your word that are difficult to mess up when you're communicating them. But Father, it's uh, pretty straightforward. But the living part of it is where the reality hits. Father, would you so change our minds, as it says in the early part of Romans, and by your mercies that we receive each day, would you cause us to be the people that bless those who persecute us? That our immediate reaction is to intercede on their behalf and ask you to do good to them. Father, would you help us to be the people that aren't standoffish, but we're involved with those around us, and we rejoice when they rejoice, and we weep with those who weep. We are called not just to be the church gathered, but the church scattered and involved with those who don't know you. Father, would you help us to live in harmony with others? Would you help us not to be viewed as cranky Christians? Would you produce the gentleness of Christ in us? Would you help us to be willing to associate with anyone? Would you help us to never be conceited? Would you cause the cross of Christ to be so before us and so in our vision that we never become arrogant? We never think how awesome we are, but we know how awesome you are. Father, would you use the incarnation not just for us to think on the fact that Jesus came, but why he came and what he did while he was here. Father, would you produce his very nature? Would you conform us to Christ? so that it's clear we are the gospel community as we go out in this community. I pray now some of us need to seek forgiveness. Some of us just need to pause and pray before we go from this place. Would you move us to that point of prayer? Would you help us to be obedient to this text in all of Romans 12? It's in your name we pray, Jesus.